the Spot Track Podcast, talking sports contracts, the salary cap, and business of sports. Today's edition of the Spot Track Podcast is a great one because it's less of me and more of really smart people elsewhere. Two guests today and a special third edition of the Spot Track Podcast this week. It's busy, it's crazy. There's a lot going on in sports, and I'm way behind just sitting here in front of the microphone. So I'm going to get out of here as quickly as possible. Here's the lineup. Keith Smith at the top, about 25 minutes on the NBA trade deadline, which is about three weeks away now. Notable names. I run down a quick list of 15 players. He says yes or no if they move at the deadline. We talk about some buyers and sellers. Some of those teams kind of stuck in the middle. There's a bunch of them this year. Um, And even the top contenders and what they might have to do over the next few weeks to make that final push towards what could be a championship run. Keith's got all the answers. As you know, he's first up in the docket. And then a real treat for us. Um, Chris Chorus from Rep One Baseball. He is actually the CEO of Rep One Baseball, one of the uh, up-and-coming agencies in Major League Baseball. One of the individuals attached to Rafael Devers' 10-year, $313.5 million extension with the Boston Red Sox. Um, he came on and answered everything. Deferred money, bonus structure, tax implications, uh, the works, why the no trade wasn't built in, but why it's still a good deal for them, for everybody. The Boston Red Sox side of this, and while they aren't in contention right now, while this deal matters to them, and the whole process of negotiating this thing, where they were last year versus where they got to this year uh, from A to Z. A real treat. Chris Corris from Rep One Baseball is at the back end of this show with a really good set of stories that led to a big-time contract in Major League Baseball. Okay, Keith, I've been neglecting the NBA for a while um, because... It's a great baseball offseason. It's NFL playoff time, but we've got to dive into this. Here's question number one. We're going to talk some trades, some potential trades. Has your impression of the trade deadline changed over the course of the past month when you really started to kind of look at this stuff? Uh, A little bit. I think what is really coming to light with the NBA trade deadline is it takes forever for there to be defined sellers the buyers are there that's the same as it's always been we get to our you know six seven this year eight nine ten contending teams that we know we're looking for help but the sellers we we are struggling to get to a little bit uh and part of that is twofold one is the advent of the playing tournament more teams are alive for something to play for it's questionable how much some of those teams care about the play-in um But they're in it longer, so it takes a little longer for them to say, all right, we should sell. The other part is with the flattened lottery odds, uh, that's basically eliminated the the need for teams to be egregiously bad. So I think what happens in this situation is it takes a very long time for it to settle. And often that's now rather than – it used to be right around the first of the year yet pretty good year or a pretty good sense. Now, sometimes it's late January or even week of trade deadline before teams are kind of making those decisions. Are we in or are we out on this season? Yeah, we're about three weeks out and it's kind of radio silent, right? I mean, maybe maybe it's it's heating up in, in, in the more specific channels that you follow. But from the outside looking in, it's still kind of, you know, there's there's <laughs> most of the articles I read and certainly your work as well, Keith still have the bulls as sellers. I'm not sure that's the case anymore, right? And if we start to look at these standings, you're talking about those play-in teams. Those are juicy teams. Utah should be selling. I don't know what Minnesota is, and I don't think they do either, right? The 
The yep. Hawks probably should be selling, but they're the nine seed and they're they're kind of trending upward right now. Miami's sort of holding court. Even Oklahoma City's involved in this thing right now, and I'm not sure they shouldn't <laughs> be buyers at this point. So there's there's a lot of weird in the middle of this group, and and the play-in stuff has made it difficult for teams to assess themselves, right? Yeah, it absolutely has. And then when you get into teams like Atlanta, Chicago, yeah. Toronto, Minnesota, uh, Portland, the Lakers, teams like that who expected to be good teams, they it's very easy for them to convince themselves, hey, we just got to make the play in, get in, win that, you know, win, win a game or two there, get into the actual playoffs, and then we'll show what we thought we were going to be. Yeah, it's been a tough first half of the regular season, but – play pretty good in the second half and now we can push forward. And, and the reality is when you get into it, it's sometimes that can be really faulty logic. Uh, there were some thought that's kind of what happened with the Sacramento Kings mm. last year. But I think that was a little, it did that trade never should have gotten killed to Halliburton for Sabonis trade the way it did. And then people acted like Sabonis was a throw in garbage player. who was a, you know, contract the Pacers had to get off of. And this guy's a defined all-star. Maybe, maybe this year could even make all NBA yeah. uh, at the center position. He's been that good. But I, I think the, the idea of, you know, do we gear up or do we go for it? Like I, I use Toronto as kind of my bellwether here. I, I think with them is, if they decide, if Masai Ujiri looks at it and says, you know what, we can make the play-in tournament, but we're not, even if we get into the playoffs, we're not beating Boston, Brooklyn, Milwaukee, Philly. Like, it's just not going to happen. So are we content with a first-round exit, or should we start the process of restocking a little bit and resetting this roster, knowing we've got a couple guys on expiring contracts who maybe, maybe won't be around next year? Those are the decisions that have to be made. And, and you know, similar – Utah's going to make some decisions like that. Hey, I, I don't want to make this the you know 97th Lakers podcast today, <laughs> but they've got to decide: are we pushing in or not? Right, and, and that's the the challenge for for those teams. And that's what talking to the teams that are at the top of the standings, their difficulty is a lot of them know. All right, we need a wing, we need a big, we need a backup point guard, whatever it is. But they're finding those things hard to get because as you're calling teams around the league, it's uh, we're not out of it yet. We're not ready to sell. Things will change here over the next month or so for a couple of those teams, but it's just going to take one. It's going to be who's that early mover that decides, all right, let's go and let's get the market moving. Yeah, you mentioned the Halliburton trade. Kind of think it worked for both here. I mean, oh, absolutely. Sacramento's the five seed. Indiana is the seventh seed. <laughs> Amazingly, uh, Indiana probably took a lot of money this offseason as worst team in the league. Uh, it, that had to be the case. When you thought about what they could be if they had moved on from Heald and Turner at the at the start of the season, like we thought was going to happen, so uh, just surprisingly good good situations for both, and that trade is the the linchpin to it. Is that does that trade exist over the next three weeks? I, I, you know, DeRozan was kind of the the number one seed. I'm not sure he's there anymore. Is there a a, a young impact player that can move? that can change maybe not the course of the next couple of months, but maybe the next two to three seasons for one of these teams. I, I definitely think it's possible. I, I think what we think of at the trade deadline is the traditional bad team trades, yeah. good players. Starting contract, right? Exactly. Yeah, I mean, they get a bunch of draft picks, young talent, and they, they kick off a rebuild. That will happen. There'll be some of that. Maybe the Pistons trade a boy on Bogdanovich, somebody like that. But I think what we may see is another chance where it's 
maybe Toronto says he's not necessarily young, but it could be a Pascal Siakam mm-hmm. deal where it's, you know what? All right. Hey, uh, Team X, you know, Utah, you, you kind of want to push in here. All right. You want to make a run? We're going to move Pascal Siakam. Does Atlanta say, you know what? We're going to move on from John Collins after years of rumors here. We're going to finally do it. Could Minnesota look to say, all right, we've got to get out of this somehow. Could could we reset to some extent by moving some guys here? I, I don't know that there's a the Halliburton part of that that trade, even though it's worked out great for both teams, was just so shocking because he was a young player. Everyone was so high on. I don't know that there's a player like that that jumps off the page. You're, you're starting to maybe hear a little bit of Trey Young buzz. Okay, places, I was about but, to go there. That because it, isn't Anthony Edwards and Trey Young a supersized version of that? And don't, aren't those at least considerations for those franchises where they sit right now? Not Edwards, not yet, because he he's still under team control. Yeah. Um. They, they they've got him on his rookie scale deal, and he's so good. I think with Trey Young, the 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 Hawks are going to hang on to him for at least probably one more cycle. So I think what, what I mean by one more cycle is from this point, that's through the summertime, rebuild the roster a little bit around him again and try to make one more run. If it's not working next year's the year, you probably start to really explore trading a guy like him. But it is out there. It's out there. Whether is he going to ask? Is he going to say, you know, I'm tired of this being right around 500 and good, but never really great, never really content and I want out or the Hawks going to finally tire of, hey, are we going to bring in a third coach that you're going to run out of town and move on from him? So that's the that that's the youngish player that I think could, could really move. But again, I, I it's not that I'm trying to make it the Raptors podcast, but that's the team I've just got my eye on, mostly because Masai Ujiri is not one who's content to just sit kind of in the middle of the league. He's going to pick a direction here. It's going to either be Let's fortify this group, go in to get what we need, or let's say forget it, punt on the rest of this year and go from there. Let's do this quickly. Let's go to the top two seeds in each conference right now. And you just give me a simple answer. Should they be a buyer? Boston. Yeah, in in a limited sense. They need to get another wing in their rotation. I, I, I threw out there on Twitter actually this morning is a guy like Chris Duarte, who Indiana is supposedly willing to move. Could that be someone Boston could get? They 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 don't need to do an all in trade. They've already done that. Uh, that 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 part has been set with the Malcolm Brogdon deal over the summer. But if you could get one more rotation upgrade and fill a hole that they have uh, on the backup wing using your trade exception, yeah, I think you absolutely do that. The Jalen Brown injury doesn't change that for you? No, because I don't think he's going to be out that long. I think even if he's out a couple weeks, that that's fine. But just just go get yourself a little bit more wing depth and go. I, I don't know because their challenges, they're not sitting on anybody who's a 10, 15, 20 million dollar salary who's not really a rotation player. They don't have that guy. All their big movable salaries to make a massive impact move are attached to rotation guys and key players for them. So it's a little bit harder for them to make a deal. So you're looking a little little further down the pecking order, someone who can fit into one of their trade exceptions and do something like that. Boring stuff, right? Okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, no, that's, that's, that's a, touches that's life when you're at the top of the That's right. They're you're, so good. That's the kind of move they have to make. That's right. Yeah. How about Brooklyn with this Kevin Durant injury? 
Yeah, I think the Nets are definitely a team I would keep an eye on. They've got the ability to stack some contracts, whether they want to move Joe Harris in a trade. Uh, They've got Patty Mills, who he doesn't play for them at all anymore. And you could put him that that's, you know, seven million or so in really nice matching salary that you could could drop into a deal. So I do think Brooklyn's going to do something. I think they know. All right. Hey, whether it's Kevin Durant is out now or is Kyrie going to hold up? He's guy who tends to have injuries or does he, you know, do something that causes him to miss more time again. Uh, they don't really have a ton of use for guys like Cameron Thomas or Daron Sharp, who are their young players on the roster, but are way out of the rotation. So if they can put a couple contracts together and go get a player, I think the Nets will definitely be in the mix because they're right there as soon as, or I should say as long as they get and stay healthy uh, with Kevin Durant, they, they can be a team that can make a real run at the finals. Are, are they looking for, uh, you know, sort of, um, Kyrie depth here, maybe maybe not now, but maybe this offseason. Or this, is this a sneaky Siakam team, Brooklyn? Yeah, I, Siakam's probably a little bit out of range because yeah. just matching the salary is probably a little tough. But the Kyrie depth, I think, is a good point because I think what you could do here if you play your cards right is you get a guy who can come in and be your depth guy for the remainder of this season, but also your insurance. If Kyrie does decide, you know what? I made this run. Let's go. Um, I'm going to go somewhere. So if that, that turned into, you know, maybe they want to chase a, a Gary Trent instead, or a, uh, not, not that he's not a perfect, obviously, you know, solution for replacing Kyrie, but because of the, the impact of Ben Simmons, his unwillingness to shoot the ball, notwithstanding, mm-hmm. you have the ability to go a lot of different directions with that point guard spot. Cause he's kind of your point guard. So you can go with a shooter instead, or you could go with a score. But I, I think, you know, if they could make a, um, kind of remember a couple of years back when the Raptors traded Norman Powell for Gary Trent yeah. and swapped that around just to rebalance and have team control. I think that's what you would want to have if you're the Nets. Is Van Fleet in the conversation then? Staying could with the be. Raptors? <laughs> yeah, he could be. I think the challenge with that one is that's an in-division trade and teams are still somewhat reluctant yeah. to do those just because you know you're seeing that guy four times a year and that becomes a little bit tough if then he's like, all right, I'm just going to kick your tail four times a year. But again, it's Masai Ujiri. I don't think he gets hung up on that. So that's a guy could see a little bit more attainable of a salary as well, matching wise. So that could be a guy. Denver and Memphis are neck and neck right now in the standings. Uh, who's got to make the bigger move here? Yeah, I just wrote about this for the site uh, last week or, or maybe earlier this week. It's all it's all running together coming out of the holidays here. <laughs> You're a daily um, now. You're a daily. <laughs> yeah, right. Pretty much. It's um when I think about uh, Memphis, I'll I'll touch on Denver in a second. But when I think about Memphis, they're twenty eight million dollars under the luxury tax line. So you have all kinds of room to add players and take on some salary and really push in and they're, they're good. They're, they're right there. They, they could be a team that could win the title. So what it's going to cost them is you're going to have to trade some of, some of your prized kids and they, they are the best draft and develop team in the entire NBA right now, their entire roster. I don't know how many people know this outside of Steven Adams and Tyus Jones was drafted by them. Hmm. So that's, you know, every single guy was, was there. And Danny green came in a trade, but he hasn't played for them yet. But their entire rotation group. Now, what 
if you want to really upgrade and go get a player, if, if someone really, you know, pops available, if they, their team, I think, should be heavily in play to go get Boyan Bogdanovich because mm-hmm. he would fill a massive need for them for another shooter, another wing scorer. And they could get there pretty easily with matching salary because you're talking Danny Green. But then you're going to have to probably give up one or two of your kids and they love their kids there. But when you're this close, for me, it's it's time to go. Like make, make your move, really try to win because as quick as those title windows open up for you, they tend to snap shut just as quickly. I love it. And Denver's pretty set, right? Maybe just a couple of bench uh, guys at best, right? Yeah, I think maybe depending on how they truly feel about Zeke Naji mm. um, as a backup big, you might want to add one more big into that rotation. I'd love to see them somehow get one more shooter. Um, but if you gave me the list of all, you know, 10 teams that could potentially make the finals. One more shooter is going to be on that list for every team um, just because you can never have enough shooting. But yeah, it's it, it, they've got what they need. Their starting group is good. Their bench group is pretty solid. Um, they can play a lot of different lineups and different versatility. I look at it as for them is they did their work in the off season by getting Contavious Caldwell Pope and Bruce Brown to really shore up that perimeter grouping and that bat yeah. scoring there. So they're, they're in really good shape. Yeah. That's the team, right? That, I mean, that, that team is uh, outside they're of right Boston. There for it's sure. it's gotta be at the top of everybody's echelon right now. Right. Yeah. They're right there at the top of the West. I, I'm not going to discount Memphis. Sure. If new Orleans can get, and more importantly, stay healthy. I, I think they have a chance. And I know they're, sitting down in eighth, a game under 500, but the Warriors are getting everybody back now. And they have been a very reluctant in-season trade team. I know people, a couple people have said to me when I've said that, they're like, they made the big Wiggins trade. And I'm like, yeah, and what else have they done? And it's like, yeah, that's true. They've never really done. And that came when it was, hey, we're kind of resetting in a down year. For them, I think they're finally at the point where they've got to look at this group and say, all right, you know what? We owe it to Stephen Curry, Draymond Green, Clay Thompson, the other veteran guys to say, forget this. Hey, we're going to stretch this into a 20 year run because Wiseman's never going to get there no. for them. You know, he may still pop. Young bigs can take a very long time to get there, but he's just never going to get the minutes he needs for a team that's trying to win titles. So I would move him and his you know big uh, salary, go get some bench help, prop that up. So I, I'm not going to count them out yet. Then, if they ever showed any kind of care towards winning in the regular season, I would buy into them a lot more. But the Clippers yeah. just I, I just I can't quit their talent. I just look at that team and I'm like, man, they're so loaded and so deep with talent. But they when they play like they care for about two days out of every week, it's it's hard to fully buy into that team, even if I did pick them to make the finals preseason. Yeah, they're they're playing half speed and they're the sixth seed. So something is clicking and we're just not paying mm-hmm. attention to it. So you're right. They're, they might be a sneaky uh, buyer here and then time to put the foot down on the gas pedal and let's do this thing. And they're a three seed before we know it. Right. Yeah. And we know taking on money is absolutely no issue for Steve Ballmer because <laughs> whatever he takes on, he made it in the time it took me to say that. So he's, you know, he's, do, he, he's doing okay. And he, and I think he's uh, clearly prioritized. I want to win more than, uh, you know, a lot of these other ownership groups. So it's, yeah, if they come to him and say, Hey, we need to take on 5 million in trade. I don't think he's even going to bat an eye at that. By the way, you know, it's, basketball season when i'm staying up past midnight for mavericks lakers so that's a (laughs) that's a reality that's why i felt it necessary to talk to you i'm gonna get you out of here on this rapid fire 
Yes or no, they move at the deadline. Um, I know you you love to hate this stuff. Ready? DeRozan. <laughs> DeRozan. No. Beal. Stays. Uh, Beal stays. Levine. Let me go back to Beal. I want to add one addendum. I think he moves this summer, maybe. Love it. Uh, uh, Levine stays. I think the Bulls are going to gonna play this out. Aiton. Stays. Westbrook. <sighs> um, <laughs> he, played good. he played well last night, man. He did, and he has been playing well. I, Is he buying in? Is that happening here? Yo, he's fully bought into that. I think he's realized, like, hey, if I want to – have more years in the career. I've got to be. This is probably what I am now. Is coming off the bench, and it's it's fine. Derrick Rose extended his career by probably five or six years by making that buy-in. Right. Here's what I'll say with the Lakers: It's not rapid fire, but if they can make the big deal that is also for the rest of this year, but adds them impact guys they can keep moving forward. Westbrook moves. If that deal's not on the table, he stays. Keith, do you hate Westbrook to the Knicks? Um, I don't hate it. It just depends on what goes the other way. Right. I like that's that's I would not be giving up a whole lot of value for that. I I I like Jalen Brunson. I like their other young guards. I'm irrationally attached to Emmanuel quickly. I you know I, he's probably one eighth of the player I dream that he is in my head for whatever reason. I just I fell in love with him in the pre draft process. So I and I like Quentin Grimes and I love Jalen Brunson. So I. I don't hate it if you could do it for like Fournier and Rose and you know one other contract. Not the end of the world, sure. You know, prop up your bench a little bit, but yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I, it's hard too because he's doing what he's doing in L.A. because LeBron That's and AD right. are there in New York. Is he gonna you know say, all right, yeah, I get to play behind Quentin Grimes? Like I don't know, that he's gonna buy into that. <laughs> Siakam and Van Fleet. Um, not Siakam, but Van Vliet, maybe, especially after this, I, you know, contract stuff. I'm going to write about him probably next week for the site in the next contract mm -hmm. series for, for him just to see what it looks like, um, and lay those options out. But I, there, there may be something there. Yeah, I think he's an opt in candidate, by the way. I'm not sure he's getting this contract again. Um, but it's the NBA, yeah, so everybody be. opts out. <laughs> yeah, uh, it, yeah. It, there's always one guy that kind of surprises you. It's like I did not expect that, but and he could be that guy. D'Angelo Russell. That's a fun one. Um, I, I think he stays because I think the Wolves. I mean, they lost to the Pistons, which was an awful loss the other night. But but they're starting to figure some stuff out. They're gonna get Carl Anthony Towns back. But I I think this. I'm gonna say this because I had somebody ask me. You think Towns could move? Mm. Not at the deadline. But I'm not taking it completely out of the uh, realm of possibility that down the line they move Carl Anthony Towns as the move to recoup everything they gave up from the Gobert trade. Oh, my goodness. We could be having a hell of a July here, right? Towns, Beal, LeBron. Seriously, I mean, this could be this could be a big, big move. Kyrie moving around here. Harden possibly moving mm -hmm. around here. My goodness, the names. Uh, Bogdanovich yeah. seems like a guarantee. Uh, is Jordan Clarkson a guarantee move here? I don't know about Clarkson. I, I would have said yes, maybe, you know, two, three months ago at the start of the year, but they've played well enough. And there's a lot of buzz that they may look to do an extension with him. Right. Uh, they love him in Utah. He's happy to be there um, with them. So I, I'm not sold that, that he may move. I think they see him, if they can get him on a reasonable extension as a nice guy when they are ready to start to win, he moves back into a bench role. They could kind of, you know, if he's our seventh or eighth best guy, we're probably in pretty good shape. Yeah, I, I actually think they're buyers. 
I, I really do. I think they're medium think they buyers, and then let's draft properly and see where this thing is in two years, right? What this reminds me of, if we go back a few years to when the Celtics really bottomed it out after the Kevin Garnett trade and all that, it was their second season under Brad Stevens when – they got good, better than anybody expected. And then right, I mean, right at the buzzer of the trade deadline, they went out and got Isaiah Thomas. Mm. And I think that was Danny Ainge kind of reading the room and saying, you know what? Brooklyn can kind of do our tanking for us. They, that's falling apart very, very quickly. I can add to this team right now and go. I wouldn't be surprised if he looks at it and says, all right, you know what? It's not a bad thing for us to try to be the a play-in team or maybe even try to make a run to the eighth seed. That's not not a bad spot for us to be because there's an awful lot of talent on that team. It fits kind of weird. So what I think you could see them do is they could be the team where it's you look at it and it's like, oh, wow, they moved, you know, player X, Y, and Z. And I like those guys, but boy, they got back, you know, one, two, and three. And I kind of like those guys too. Just it might be more of a rebalance the roster type deal um, to kind of push them in. But yeah, I think they are a sneaky buyer. Kuzma's gone. I think so. I do think he might be arguably the biggest name I that I feel most confident will move. He He's just, outside of saying, I'm not re-signing here, he's sending every signal that he's not staying in Washington. Very movable contract at $13 million, so very easily traded to just about anywhere. And if you're the Wizards, it's complete malpractice to keep him to chase a playing spot over getting you know something of value back for him. They, they need to be very smart with this one. I like that from Memphis quite a bit, but I'm not sure they can get that He's done. the guy. Yep. Yeah, I like him for Memphis. I also really like him for Cleveland. Oh. I think Cleveland is a spot where he could really fill a big, big role. Very similar situations. Uh, yep. Does Miles Turner finally freaking move so we can stop talking about him? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I predict I'll be writing spot track columns about Miles Turner for years to come. Um, <laughs> I... I uh, he, you know, it's weird. I think we're going to know by the end of the month if they don't do the renegotiation and extension with him and the deadline is the end of this month in January, then I think there is a bit of potential he moves because I think at that point the Pacers may have a sense of, all right, he's not going anywhere. And if they are also not lined up to take on money and, and fill, they're sitting on almost $28 million in cap space. If they don't take on that money, then what I think that ultimately becomes is there is, all right, we've got to do a bigger trade where we move Turner and he goes because you can't, you cannot risk him walking away for nothing. And he's a fit on every team that has cap space. He's a fit to be a sign and trade guy, all sorts of stuff this summer. I like it. I like it. You're right. There's, my goodness, there could be 15 buyers right now in this league, and that's exactly what they want. They want half the league invested, you know, at this time of year. And uh, I really only think there's eight or nine teams in serious tank mode at this point in time. And I can't include the Lakers because there's nothing to tank for. Exactly. So yeah, yeah I don't even know if it's that. No, many. it might be six to seven now six. that I look more right. If Washington yeah. sells, they'll be in the mix. But yeah, yeah it's yeah. this is exactly where the league wants to be. So. Yep. Um, maybe a, a muted trade deadline, even though we've got some names here that we discussed, but I'm looking forward to July now after <laughs> having this discussion. <laughs> you know what I think with the trade deadline too? I always keep an eye on the teams with cap space. Who are they? Are they, are they rebuilding teams? And the vast majority of the teams that have cap space this summer are going to likely be rebuilding teams. And then what is the free agent market? Well, it's not as bad as it was last year, but it's kind of not great again. 
So I think that tends to lead us towards an active trade deadline because I look at a guy like Boyan Bogdanovich and what you sell if you go and acquire him is, hey, not only was he a great addition for us for the rest of this year, but he's kind of sort of our big addition for the summer too. We just did it as a pre-spending now. And that's where I think we may see some moves like that. The problem is, again, we need those teams to fall out. We need Washington, Toronto, uh, OKC, Portland, Minnesota, Utah, a few of those teams to really have a bad couple weeks here so that they're like, all right, yeah, this is not worth propping this thing up. Let's let's start moving, guys. That's, that's what we need. But I do think this is going to be – it feels like the NBA every three, four years – a summer comes along where it's like, holy crap, we just reset the entire league. I feel like that's one of the things we may be leading up to. Great stuff as always. He's writing like crazy for the site. We'll have him more and more on the pod if, as the uh, NBA season progresses. And, of course, as the trade deadline approaches, which is just about three, three weeks away. Keith, good stuff as always. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. The Boston Red Sox finally made official the Rafael Devers extension. It's officially a 10-year, $313.5 million extension tacked on to $17.5 million for the 2023 season. I am thrilled to be joined by one of the representatives responsible for this big-time blockbuster contract, Chris Corris, the CEO of Rep One Baseball. Chris, appreciate your time, and congratulations on this excellent deal. Yeah, thank you so much, and, and thank you for having me on. Um, you know, as, as, as I've expressed to you, I've, I've been such a, a fan of uh, of the work that you've put in for such a long time and and really such a frequent user of, of what you do, um, admittedly, even during this process on the negotiation that we're discussing today. Anything that I need to kind of quickly reference on the fly to, to maybe adjust some perspective or provide a a counterpunch in the discussions. Um, you give us the most efficient way to do that. So thank you. I appreciate that. It's a labor of love for sure, as you probably know, tracking this stuff internally. Um, yep. Look, let's just get started with you. Uh, you know, how did, how did you get here? How did you find Rep One Baseball? What's your background in uh, sports and entertainment? And, uh, and what kind of drove you to this sort of leadership role? Yeah, so I grew up in Toronto, uh, Canada, and you know, really like like most good Canadian boys, took to hockey right away. Um, but uh, in addition to hockey, I, I just frankly grew up as a sports fanatic, as I'm sure you did. Um, anything that involved a high level of competition um, on on TV or otherwise, I, I was game for it. So college basketball, boxing, hockey, football, you name it, I was drawn to it. And I, I think the best way to, to describe um, how I feel about my career is I, I'd be talking about sports probably 24 hours a day if I wasn't working in it. And I get to, to talk about sports now for a living, which is a really, really cool thing. And I feel very, very fortunate. Um, but growing up a sports fan, just naturally drawn to the business of sport. As, as I got older, uh, I went and played college hockey in uh, Western New York um, and then went to law school uh, where, where I live now, which is in Southern California at a school called Chapman. Um, now live here with uh, my wife and, and one-year-old son, which has been a, a really fun uh, <laughs> time in our lives, uh, complicated and, and certainly stressful and wonderful and, and all of the above. Um, but after law school, uh, I, I actually, it's, it's a name that I'm sure 
you're familiar with and your listeners will, will be familiar with, um, got hooked up with a guy named Lee Steinberg. Mm-hmm. And, and my first job out of law school uh, was with Lee. And I'm, I'm not even sure that I would frame it as a job because Lee at that point um, was really in a, in a challenging position. He had gone through um, a couple of really hard years. And, you know, I came out of law school bright eyed and bushy tailed having little to no business acumen thinking, hey, you know what, I, I can take this guy, I can help him out, and we can create the next iteration of Steinberg Sports. So that's what I decided to do and called mom and dad and let them know I wasn't going to be paid for a while. <laughs> um, slept on a friend's couch for a couple of months, you know, picked up some some hockey coaching gigs down here to, to try to accumulate um, some form of ability to pay the bills. But I, I knew that the, the opportunity was rare to to work with one of the the giants of our industry. Um, and, and although he was in a, a tougher position than I had first anticipated, um, I, I just knew that what would come from that experience, if nothing worked out, was really kind of a PhD uh, in the business of sport. So I took it on and and was certainly successful in assisting Lee get through some some tough stuff. Um, to the point where we were able to procure some venture capital interest and he was recertified by the NFLPA. Um, and through that process, again, just being drawn more towards the, the actual business of sport, as opposed to, you know, really being in the weeds of, of talent representation. And part of that, that venture interest or the capital interest that we started to develop, um, was an individual who eventually did not invest in, in Steinberg Sports, but um, who really took a liking to me, and I've been working with him ever since. And, and why I was drawn away from Lee and, and more towards um, this individual was he's a self-made man, uh, early 40s, multiple businesses, and I really felt that what I was lacking was uh, a comprehensive business knowledge to to really use as a platform to launch my career into um, into another area. I, I had the background in law. Um, I certainly knew a lot about sports, but just felt that I was lacking in business and felt that the, the opportunity that was presented to me with him to work as his right-hand man across all of his businesses um, was going to get me to a place that I, I wanted to be. And one of those businesses happened to eventually be um, us buying into Rep One. So Rep One's been around for, God, I want to say 17 or 18 years. Um, it was exclusively a football representation business for uh, the better part of that time period. And we bought in and, and believed in uh, their value system, the way they they, they did their business, the, the track record that they had and, and the track record that I we all felt that they would be building and took a minority interest in that business. But then the idea was to, to really launch um, a baseball platform and then go from there off of uh, the rep one uh, business that they had built at that time. So that's what we did. And we started through acquisition and naturally, again, just my, my love for, for sports, I couldn't help myself. I just started to naturally be drawn to, to that one business that um, was in the portfolio of interest we were maintaining and slowly but surely spent more and more time on it. And it was about two years in, uh, to to the existence of Rep One Baseball that 
um, Evan, who's the, the capital source uh, that, that I've mentioned a few times here, asked me to, to actually step in and run it. So I've been running it now for about six years. Um, we have built in that time, I, I want to say we we had about five to seven major league players when I started about six, six and a half years ago. And last year we had uh, the good fortune of, of working with, I, I believe it was 65 players who played in, in an MLB game. So we've we've really grown to one of the more substantial groups in our business uh, in terms of volume and quality of player. And and my job inside the agency is really uh, allocation of capital, objective setting, strategy, implementation, and execution, and, and you know, creating the, the platform for the business we want to be. So I, I, I run and, and operate that business. And then I actually have a, another business that I created and, and operate as a partner that is uh, in Toronto and down here in Southern California. Um, that is a creative production company that does series and and uh, and film unscripted content. Um, got a couple of really exciting things in this year. Can't can't really say too much about the project, but uh, I'm sure guys like you and myself and uh, your listeners will be watching uh, one of the series that we have coming out on Netflix that I'm really excited about. So that's like I guess the the overall story of of then to now. Uh, incredible. Um, for those who aren't aware. You know that the Lee Lee Steinberg portion of this, uh, you know, one of the biggest contracts in sports history. Uh, Patrick Mahomes is attached to Lee Steinberg, and uh, and we've certainly had spent uh, plenty of capital and time on on that deal and breaking it down. And we're going to do a little bit of that here with Raphael Devers, one of those clients you mentioned, attached to Rep One Baseball. Now, by the way, I am speaking to you from Western New York. I had no idea you had ties here. I just looked it up. You're, I, you're, you're a Buffalo guy, right? I am. Yeah, I'm sitting here in Orchard Park, just a couple miles from the Bills Stadium. So, uh, I, well, I, no I, um, I, I, you know, I don't, I don't know if uh, you, you're, you're like me and, and you're, you're a big food guy, but I, I just ordered. I think it was from Anchor Bar. I had, I had wings sent from <laughs> Buffalo to my home here in Newport Beach um, because I had such an affinity for that part of the country and and I, I love wings and i knew the only place to get them was was from buffalo so shout out to buffalo wings i love to hear it let's get into this devers <laughs> deal man um finally official we finally realize it's not a 10 an 11 year deal and it's a 10 year deal um how what's the build up with this how, you know how long ago did this start um how much did the red sox sort of breaking pieces apart here you know mookie betts and then xander bogarts and a few others you know, were there roadblocks that got in the way here? Was this thing ever not going to get to the finish line and you thought you were going to have to jump ship off the Boston train? Um, I, I imagine the stories behind this one kind of piled up on you. Yeah, I, I, and I, I think it's a good story. And look, as a, as a sports guy who, who really believes that the narrative behind the game actually drives the interest in the game, um, if I wasn't involved in this, I would certainly be glued to, to whatever uh, article or otherwise was actually talking about this because it, it's it's complex and it's interesting and um, I hope I hope everyone would agree but I'll, I'll set the the stage with with really the pieces on the chessboard because um, it is complex and I just laying the foundation I think is probably smart um, on our team we have the good fortune of being a, a larger group and and we do operate as as a team and I think when you're looking at a deal of, of this size and stature and importance, uh, really the only way this gets done in a way that's that's favorable to the player um, is if you're working with a team of resources, a team of experts that are particularly good at what they do 
in their lane as part of, of the bigger team focus. So um, Nelson Montez de Oca, who uh, was up on the podium uh, with myself and, and Red Sox leadership when we announced the deal on Wednesday, uh, he's the lead agent for uh, RAF, and he carried a lot of the discussions directly with Hein Bloom um, and really was tasked with taking this thing uh, across the finish line. Our, our baseball analytics uh, head, Scott Nelson, heavily involved in developing the baseball strategy, uh, the baseball comps, the, the foundational elements of the baseball arguments uh, for a guy like Nelson and for the rest of our agents. Our, our most senior agent in the group, Peter Greenberg, who's been around for a long time and has done some amazing deals. Uh, myself as the head of the firm involved in every discussion. And then we have a back office of, of more junior staff that um, does a lot of the work to, to actually get us there. So, you know, that that's a, a sample size of what goes into something like this. So it, it just tells you, again, the, the importance of, of the deal um, and the complexities of, of what is, is going on behind the scenes when you have that many people involved. So in terms of a timeline, I think you really take this all the way back to the beginning of, of uh, salary arbitration eligibility for RAF and, you know, the need to, to educate um, at that level to, to, to really provide cost benefit, to, uh, to give the athlete a better understanding of, of how markets work, uh, the process, et cetera, so that he can get comfortable, so that he can be confident on the field and off the field to, to get to the, the, the place that we got to. So we're, we're talking years and years of work um, leading into the big discussion uh, that we eventually came to, which is, are we looking for an extension today? Are we uh, excited? Are we interested in, in the possibility of, of an extension prior to free agency? Or are we going to go to free agency? And the discussions with the Red Sox really heated up um, right around spring training of, of 22 and it, it, you know there was there was enough heat on those discussions to be interested, but you know I think we we cut them off pretty quickly um, with our position and Raf's position that uh, no negotiations were going to take place during the season. There was no intention of being a distraction on on any level, and and Raf has always maintained that during the season the only thing he wants to be hearing and and focusing on is is baseball. So you go all the way back to last year. And then at the end of uh, at the end of the season, so about October 20th or so, um, that that heat then I guess picked right back up. So from then on out, you've got these natural checkpoints: the GM meetings, uh, the winter meetings. You get in front of, of each other. Um, you know, you have these discussions again, led by led by Nelson and, and Hein Bloom on uh, on the part of the Red Sox. Um, a lot of back and forth. Uh, you know, a lot of. A lot of tough calls, I'm sure, for Nelson, a lot of frustration, um, but, uh, you know, always maintaining a, a positive relationship with the Red Sox, which was key to this thing. And, and really where it, where it got to the point where we, we felt that it was it was serious enough that the, the focus should should start to shift towards getting a deal done now as opposed to exploring free agency was right around December 12th. And what happened there was the, the Red Sox did come up to a, a number that we felt was within striking distance of getting something done. And that was $300 million. Um, and what they proposed to try in an effort to really push this, push this across the finish line and, and to really express 
just how serious they were to express just how important this was to their organization. Uh, we organized, I guess what you could call a, a secret meeting, a confidential meeting uh, down in the Dominican Republic. And this was on a Monday and the meeting was gonna be on a Wednesday. So I booked a flight that night um, from California to the Dominican and we showed up uh, with our full ammunition um, and, and got into a room with not only Red Sox, front office folks, but also uh, ownership. John Henry flew down as well. And it got it got serious from there. So that that I felt was a really positive sign that they they wanted to to really try everything they could to, to push us across the finish line. It, it's highly unusual to be in a room like that. Um, you know, it just really doesn't happen all that often, if ever, to have, I, I believe, 10 members of the negotiating team on either side including ownership uh, it was a great gesture and and then from there a lot of a lot of conversations a lot of zoom calls with myself sam kennedy the ceo um nelson and heim trying to work collaboratively to to get this thing done now you you asked it i think at one point was it dead i i, I did um you know there was a brief period leading into christmas where we just didn't think off of the 300 the traction was there enough from their side and the collaboration wasn't what it should have been and we we thought it might be dead in the water but a couple uh again late night calls uh zoom calls uh even leading into new year's eve where we had a, a number of back and forth that that didn't necessarily get us there but uh it, it it's been quite the journey and it culminated um really late late new year's eve where we saw the light and we were able to finish it off uh right after the winter classic where boston was hosting uh pittsburgh uh, at fenway so that night um nelson and i worked hard to just put the final uh, final touches on the deal together and uh and we got something done and couldn't be happier wow I mean, especially mixed over the holidays here. That that had to be a whirlwind of a couple of weeks there. Um, yeah. Sure sounds like Boston was motivated for a lot of reasons, right? Not just because Devers is the player he is and, and et cetera, et cetera. But this seems like something that that franchise absolutely needed to do from a franchise standpoint, right? Um, just to get the narrative out there that they are not going all the way down, that they are sustaining at some point, that they are willing to pay these kind of contracts because it's been a minute since Boston has kind of looked yep. like that to the outward public. Uh, so obviously to your benefit, that's where we are today. I, I want to ask quickly about free agency. Obviously that isn't the path we're going here. I, I think that, I think the idea of free agency in baseball has been a bit of a roller coaster here, especially over the past 10 years, there was an instance there and I, I like to tie the Jason Hayward contract to it where Everybody just kind of looked at each other and said, this thing is broken. We are, we are throwing money around for, you know, one to two elements, you know, in his case, basically all defensively. And, and it's just too much. We are, we are way past the point of return here. And we all have to put our foot down and sort of collectively say no more. Um, I, I feel like that has bounced and, and cycled back a little bit. And the past two, obviously, the players and the pool that have been available have been strong. But it seems like the ability to overpay in free agency is back. Was any of that built into your decision making? And maybe, you know, maybe last year versus this year offseason was different in that regard. Um, do you believe that there was more on the table for Devers next December in free agency? 
Or were you concerned that, you know, this thing could cycle back and teams may decide no more big time spending like this? I, I guess we have Steve Cohen to thank for this, right? Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I say that jokingly, but he he has been, uh, I think, a welcome delight for for players, for player representation, and for baseball fans. You know, I, I again, I, I really do believe that the narrative surrounding the game is is as important as the game itself. Right. And base baseball's had a few tough years of of outside the lines narrative um and i think they've made a lot of mistakes in that regard and it's it's hurt the game and it's hurt the players and it's suppressed salaries as we've seen um but the the last couple of years specifically this offseason has certainly changed that it looks like the tides have turned and i think that's great for the game because people are talking about baseball a lot um and and the sentiment is positive you know it's it's exciting to talk about these deals it's it's interesting to watch um players explore free agency it's interesting to watch a guy like aaron judge hmm. choose to stay home in free agency like these these things are all so great for the game and it, i think it's been so positive and i really do hope that that momentum carries forward and, and baseball takes notice and and recognizes that all this positive sentiment all the chatter all the narrative surrounding the game is is going to lead to positive results on the field and, and putting butts in the stands and, and gluing people to the TV because they're excited about um, the, how, how things are going to transpire coming out of an exciting offseason. So that's just for me kind of a general note on on the state of baseball and, and why I think it's been so exciting to see what we've seen in the last couple of years, specifically this offseason. I think when it comes to this deal in particular, and you know this this often gets left off the table when uh, discussing kind of the the highlighted points of the deal so everyone is is of course glued to the the overall guarantee the number of years the aav those are the great uh talking points that uh, deals are judged by and and rightfully so i mean those are are the, the the big ticket items but what goes on behind the scenes on these deals a, a lot of times are player interests just vary um guys that take early extensions do so for specific reasons um i think some of the early extension deals get um you know wrongfully criticized w without understanding the, the the behind the scene details of what's important to the player and in this regard you know optimizing the financial opportunity for a superstar talent uh was was certainly priority number one and and you know raf has earned the right to to get every dollar that the market suggests that he's worth but but one b and this was a mandate provided to us is that raf wanted to remain in a red sox uniform um you know this is a player that was signed at the age of 16 uh by the boston red sox it was his favorite team growing up he loves the city of boston he loves the fans um Although I think he would admit, it, I think he loves the pressure that that comes with it, um, and I, I think everything about him and in and uh, his fiber is is right for that city, right for the fan base, and it's it's what he wanted. So, you know, going into these discussions, we knew that we, we again the education process that started early on put us in a position where there wasn't any irrationality behind the thinking of staying in a Red Sox uniform, but rather 
there was a, a high level of interest in staying there, uh, but it allowed us to do our job. And that was really to optimize uh, at, at this specific juncture. He knows, he, he knew, excuse me, um, the cost benefit of doing something now versus waiting until free agency. We felt comfortable that going into next year's market, when you take a look at, and let's put Shohei Otani um, on the side, because it, I'm not sure you can really count him as as, as part of any market. He's a, he's a unicorn. Raph was going to be the best player available, and there was a lot of big market teams that had a need for a third baseman. We knew it. The Red Sox knew it. We all understood the rules of engagement, um, and we felt that if we could get the the top dollar value for Raph today, and we could do it in a way that met his other desire, which is staying in a Red Sox uniform, then it would have really done our job. Um, and when you think about it, when, when I, in anticipation of, of just getting on today with you, I was thinking about players that have spent their entire careers in one uniform. And and what I found was was only 18 players have ever only been with one team, and that's exceeded a 20-year timeline. Um, not a single one of those players has come from Venezuela or the Dominican Republic. Um, and of those 18, only four have happened in the last 25 years, and that's Jeter, Ripken, Biggio, and Gwynn. Mm. And, and that, that is really, really rarefied air. And I, I think we can agree that winning in Boston, uh, being loved in Boston, succeeding in Boston is as good as, as anything in baseball. And Raf has the opportunity to, to be in that rarefied air with the names that I just mentioned and, and really create history um, in that he would be the only player in that group from the Dominican Republic. So, you know, we, we feel like it was just such a huge win to get the overall guarantee that Raph got um, in, a, in a manner that, that built bridges with the Red Sox front office, the organization, the fans, and, and hit that mandate that, that Raph really desired, which is staying, uh, hopefully, a Boston Red Sox for the rest of his career. Super interesting and a good transition into where I was about to go, which is, um, I and obviously correct me if I'm wrong, you would know, is there a full no trade clause with this deal? Because we've been seeing it quite a bit. Basically, every major contract signed this offseason has had one included. And, and the way you're speaking with how important it is for him to be in Boston, at least for the foreseeable future, does he have any control over where he goes from here? Yeah, so um, it is not. So there's no there's no no trade. Um, there's what we would consider somewhat of a modified because we did attach a two million dollar penalty to any trade. So that that is some disincentivization to um, to part ways with with his services. But what I can tell you, and I think I think all of this is important when when really analyzing just how comfortable we were uh, with the no trade. One, uh, the Red Sox just have a precedent that that's not something that they do. Okay. Uh, so it's it's it it presents a far more challenging proposition, even with a deal of this size, when you're dealing with a team that just has this, an established way of doing things. Now, that that's all great. You know, we we've got the client interest to to maintain, but when you take a look at the situation that Raf's going to find himself in as a member of the Boston Red Sox for the foreseeable future. I think we can all agree and certainly not speaking for for the Red Sox or high, but I think that they maybe behind closed doors would tell you they're they're not in a win now window. Um, it's going to take a couple of years to build up the prospects to get to a place where 
um, the Boston Red Sox are going to be highly competitive in a sustained way, not just in the very competitive AL East, but as a contender for a World Series. And Raff is the face of that that movement. Um, he's the centerpiece of it. And you know, in years three, four, five, six, and seven of of that deal, uh, you're going to need him there. You're going to need him to push all of those prospects. You're going to have to have the anchor in the middle of the lineup. So I, I just think realistically, uh, over the course of the next five years, uh, there there really isn't, um, uh, I, I guess, a logical way to look at trading a Rafael Devers specifically because what what he means to that city and that team having won a World Series being the face of the organization the commitment that they've rolled out for him I, I frankly just don't see it happening it, it wouldn't it wouldn't be logical to do that so you, you, why the five-year uh, window is important is that in five years uh, Raf will have his 10 and 5 rights vested um, because he will have five consecutive seasons with one team and, and 10 years of service. And at that point, he has a full veto right to not get traded. So we saw it in two separate windows. Uh, we attached a, a penalty to it just in case, which I think um, was was good on our part. But again, I think everyone went into this deal with, uh, with the absolute intention that um, this young man was, was going to end in a Red Sox uniform. It's well said. I have uh, one more money question and then one more global question, and we'll get you out of here. I appreciate your time. Sure. This is great. Of um, course. $75 million of this contract is deferred. We're seeing this quite a bit. I know it's similar to the no-trade situation. It is a team-by-team -team sort of decision, sort of situation. Um, I, I, I know the benefits, and I think our listeners, for the most part, know the benefits for the team. Obviously, it lowers the AAV. It lowers the current product. Um, is there a pro and con to the player? Is this something that you push against that you're willing to build in? Is it something you have to say, all right, this 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 overall price has to be bigger if we're going to defer, you know, 25% of it like we've done here? Um, just where do you stand on that? Where did we get to with this? And uh, some pros and cons, if you don't mind. Yeah, of course. So, so you know, when, when we're working through the deal analysis um, that involves uh, a concept of deferred compensation, what what you move towards is is really uh, a, a lot of a business analysis as, as opposed to a baseball analysis. So a little bit less on you know the big splashy figures that we tend to to take a look at when these deals are announced, and more towards um, any uh, an economic model. Excuse me, focusing specifically on the net present value of of the proposed deal. And uh, again, I think. It, just kind of circling back to where I started with this, you, you need a really qualified team of, of professionals who have different skill sets. So, you know, you loop in an accountant, um, my office that handles all the financial modeling is heavily involved in thinking these things through and coming up with creative solutions uh, from a structure perspective that pull on a different lever is the overall guarantee. Is the money front loaded, back loaded? How are we thinking about the bonus? How is the bonus taxed with, again, with the accountants? What, what are the tax implications of deferred salary considering the state that the individual lives in um, when, when he plays, excuse me? Uh, you know, all, all of these things, they're, they're, they're not um, considered in a vacuum. They're all taken together and we, we pop out creative deal structures to get to 
an economic figure that we feel is is fully representative of the value of the player, not just the overall guarantee. So in a, in a straight line perspective, um, you know, without without offering any accounting advice, because I'm not <laughs> I'm not an accountant. There there are better uh, better guys in my office uh, when it comes to to that part of the analysis. Uh, you know, he is in he's playing in a state that. Uh, as of this year is is really heavy on high income earners and there are deferred tax implications um, in that regard as well as tax implications uh, when it comes to the structure of the bonuses as well so long term there are uh, benefits that are are certainly factored into the MPV analysis of, of again whether we felt the the end product was economically representative of the value of the player so there are benefits in that regard um and i think and i guess that that's that's my answer but if you're if you're asking raf you know i think in retirement mm-hmm. um you know sitting on the beautiful beaches of samana in the dominican republic getting a seven plus million dollar check every year that that sounds pretty reasonable to me yeah i was i was going to actually ask if he had an opinion on that kind of stuff obviously you looped him in on most of this stuff i would imagine you know what happens when when you go to a player like this and say look they want to push 75 million out um are you anticipating you know having to educate him like this are you or is he basically just saying it sounds great because of what you just laid out there yeah, I, I think it's somewhere in between um, the, the the education of the player. Again, this this is all the reason why you have to to get in early with the player and explain the process, empower the player, who at the end of the day is the boss. We we work for the player. Um, that they need to feel comfortable and empowered. That when we're having the discussions as their advisors, they understand. Uh, what we're saying, at least at a surface uh, level perspective, to be able to to analyze it uh, to a certain extent on their own. Now, of course, you know, Raf, and I'm sure the heavy, heavy majority of the players in the MLB are, are not going to be able to fully comprehend the economic complexities that come with a deal of this of this sort. But because I think we took such a, a good approach or the right approach to educating the player, because Raf is is a really smart young man um, who has all the conviction in himself in the world. Uh, we were able to discuss some of these concepts in a way that he fully digested them and you know gave us the green light to go and do what we felt was was appropriate for the player. Last one. Um, it's a softball question, but I, I ask it to anybody tied to this sport because you've, you've already mentioned it once. The, Major League Baseball has had its up and downs, especially from a branding and marketing perspective, in my opinion, of late. Um, let's say we're a couple years away from the next iteration of this CBA discussion, at least. There's an opt-out coming up, you know, not super long down the road here. In terms of the financial stuff and the world that you live in with Major League Baseball at Rep. 1 Baseball, is there something specifically that that's that's just eating at you right now that you think has to absolutely get ironed out as we approach the next ten years of Major League Baseball? Yeah, it's that's that's the million dollar question um, that should have been answered with the last CBA negotiations. <laughs> that, um, not, I'm not sure anyone on my side of, of the table feels that we've we've you know perfectly addressed. And of course, not these these discussions are really tough. Um, I don't think we've pers- perfectly addressed some of the the lagging issues that have plagued baseball for for a number of years. But I, I think what we, for me, what really needs to happen 
prior to the details is is there needs to be a perspective shift on how players are treated during these discussions. And I think a lot of people feel this publicly. I think the players feel it. Rather than being treated as an instrument for profit, they need to be treated as partners. And there needs to be a collaborative approach that first and foremost takes the health and the growth of the game as as paramount to anything else and as uh, as partners in that endeavor the players should be uh, again treated more as such and collaboration should be at, at at the front of everyone's mind when trying to deal with some of the stuff that we all can see is is weighing baseball down yeah. um now what is what does that mean for me first and foremost uh, service time manipulation i i think still is an issue that we have not addressed in an appropriate way. Um, I think everyone can agree that anytime you're working in a system that incentivizes teams to not put their best players on the field, there, there's a problem there. And we need more young superstars coming up earlier with more face time, with more social engagement, with more um, promotion, you know, all those things that we've seen some of the other leagues do so well, like the NBA, um, the, the, the MLB is just not uh, has not structured a CBA that, that really incentivizes teams to to engage in that type of behavior. And I just think that's purely bad for the game. So I, I try to take a step back. And although I'm on the player representation side of the business, I understand that what's best for the player is best for the game and vice versa. And I think we really need to change the way that system works so that, you know, we can see more of the, the Julio Rodriguez's of the, of the world come up earlier and excite and engage and, and invigorate the next um, wave of fans. And I think for me, the, the second uh, element to this that really um, it should not be surprising, I think it's, it's one hot button topic that, um, you know, everyone continues to focus on. Is, is really just uh, the enforcing of, of the intention of the rules when it comes to revenue sharing um, and, and enforcing some sort of penalty, just like we've got a tax threshold on the upper side of the spending for teams that don't actually use uh, the revenue sharing components and the intention and spirit of what it's put uh, in there for, which is competitive balance. So, you know, when you've got, it's, it's obvious, when you have a number of teams um, that are not spending the way they should and you don't have true parity and don't have competitiveness at, at every level in such an obvious way. I, again, I think that is is very bad for the game. And I think instead of dealing with these issues, to me, the MLB has had a, a fairly myopic attitude to, to some of these things. Um, if we can just consistently take a step back do what's best for the game, treat the players like partners, address these two issues in particular, in addition to some of the others that are, are still probably plaguing the game. I, I just think the longevity, the growth of the game, the health of the game uh, for all the all the constituents, all the vested parties, specifically for me, again, and what I do, um, uh, the, the best interest of the players, I, I just think that that's going to be the right approach. And I, I hope that's, that's the case. I think we've made some strides. Um, I think we've got a long way to go, and and you know, hopefully, as the years progress and the treatment of players improves, uh, minor league system, major league system, et cetera, uh, we can get to a place that we enter into the next CBA negotiation with a better perspective, and and we can actually drill down on some of these issues in a collaborative way 
to get to a better answer uh, in terms of what's best for baseball. Less strict service time rules for team control and a salary floor. Is that what you're saying out loud? Because I agree. <laughs> yeah, and I don't, I, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to avoid saying a floor. I know, I know. If, if we get into a floor, we get into the discussion of the cap, and then, man, we just <laughs> That's the we unravel, we unravel all of that goodwill. Everybody freaks but, out at cap. I get it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, I, I, yes, I, I, think, I think we just have to really incentivize. And when it comes to that issue in particular, incentivize uh teams to just do better and, and i uh, maybe just end on this note i when i was um in these discussions on on raf speaking with sam kennedy the, the president and ceo of the red sox one of the things that i brought up was i i couldn't help but um you know funnel through twitter during some of these discussions just trying to gauge the temperature of the fan base and and one video popped up and i, I said this to sam directly in our discussions um, I think it was the, the 2021 ALDS against Tampa and they're, they're at Fenway, they're under the lights um, it, it, and Raf hits a two out three run bomb to dead center at Fenway, 40,000 people go absolutely crazy. And my point to Sam and telling him this was, Sam, I, I goosebumps watching that and I, I couldn't help but think to myself, this is why you need superstar players and this is why you sign a guy outside of, of the reason of maybe what some of the baseball at the granular baseball analytics would tell you, because it's, it's, it's rare. There are so many, there aren't, there, there are, are so limited, so few professional athletes that, you know, can deliver night in and night out on the biggest stage, galvanizing a fan base on a consistent basis, like a Raphael Devers. And that's why you pay them. And I think we need more of those guys in the league um, earlier, more consistently, and give them an opportunity to thrive and engage the fan base, especially the, the new fan base, in a way that they'll never forget. So it's, it's not only why you, you pay Raphael Devers what you pay him at a total deal value of $331 million, mm -hmm. but it's why baseball should really um, straighten some of these things out to get some of these, these young men up there earlier so that we can uh, really engage the, the next wave of fans that are going to prop Major League Baseball up for the next decade or two. And have a, a chance to grow with them, right? I, I completely agree, and we're trying to track the pre-arb stuff uh, as closely as possible as it starts to, starts to percolate. We'll see if it continues. Chris, this was outstanding. I really appreciate your time and your stories and obviously all your efforts and work with this deal and uh, bringing it to fruition and to life for us. This is uh, a real treat for us. I appreciate it. Well, thank you so much again, Michael, for having me. Keep up the, the great work on your end. Um, and, and hopefully our group has a few more of these to discuss. And I, I'd love to continue to pop, uh, pop my head in um, and provide any insight I can. You bet. Let's do it again. Thank you. Thank you. All right. That was a treat. My thanks to Chris. Again, that's Chris Corris, CEO of Rep One Baseball. Had some outstanding stories there with Rafael Devers. And my thanks to Keith Smith, who brings it every time. He'll be on more, much more prevalent now that NBA is uh, in focus to some degree. Obviously, the NFL playoffs are going to continue to dominate. But some of those names that he threw out there, Keith, uh, could draw some serious interest. So we'll keep an eye on that. Obviously, we'll have Keith back, and he's been writing quite a bit for SpyTrade.com, as have I. The uh, NFL offseason financial series is live. Division by division, excuse me, division by division, all eight are now live. So if your team... Uh, has serious question marks, or maybe you don't know what those are. I've established extension candidates, roster bubble players, some trade options, 
uh, projected cap space for 2023 for every single team in the NFL this offseason, and uh, some predictions and projections for each going forward. For Scott Allen, my name is Mike Chinetti. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Spy Trade Podcast.